On today's episode of the Sixers Beat, we talk about how many games Al Horford might start in the playoffs, on why the Sixers have struck out so far in the buyout market, on why Mike Scott continues to remain in the rotation, some thoughts on Ben Simmons and his mediocre defensive plus-minus based statistics, and who we like for X's nose breakdowns outside of our colleagues at The Athletic. And with that out of the way, on to the show. Welcome, everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined by Rich Hoffman on the Sixers Beat, a part of the Athletics Podcast Network. Real quick before we begin, if you're not already an Athletic subscriber, head on over to theathletic.com slash Sixers Beat, theathletic.com slash name of this podcast. You can get 40% off if you are not already a subscriber. You can read Rich, myself, Mike O'Connor, and not to mention the giant staff of NBA writers of really anything you can imagine under one umbrella. It is a, I might be a tiny bit biased, but it is well worth your money. One stop like shopping. Said, yes. And you can get 40% off. So head on over there on a yearly subscription. How you doing, Rich? I'm good, man. Did you watch the all-star game at all? <laughs> you know, I didn't. Cause we just talked about this. I did not watch a second of all-star weekend. You know, I went, I was out there. This might be my most carmudgeon aspect of covering the sport. That's why I wanted you to talk yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. You're setting me up. I got it. I was not going to talk about this. Not, not going to reveal this, but here we are. After going out there for the last two, I went out there to LA two years ago and to Charlotte last year. I took this one off. I took this weekend off. Theoretically, I like the changes. I like the Elam ending. I like all of that. I think that probably produced a better brand of basketball, uh, or at least a better brand of all-star basketball. But I couldn't tell you because I didn't watch a single second, and I'm loving every second of that. Yeah, I, I didn't watch any of the Saturday night competition. I don't um, really care about the dunk contest, but I did watch the All-Star game, and I thought the fourth quarter of it with that Elam ending, Elam, Elam, I don't know, J- Jason Elam. Is who I'm E-L-A-M, the, whatever. The, uh, the Broncos kicker. The um, the game on Sunday night was good, good though. The uh, crunch time, Embiid playing a million minutes, I'm sure. Some Sixers fans weren't that happy. I'm sure Brett Brown probably didn't love it, but JoJo working up quite a sweat as they were at one point running their offense through him. And he did pretty well. But yeah, besides that, uh, I just thought it was a uh, it was a fun, fun game. Kyle Lowry taking charges, all that stuff. Better than usual because that game is typically garbanzo beans. And uh, yeah, ready to get back to real basketball. Yeah, the the only event I usually go out of my way to watch is a three-point shooting contest. And then I'll I'll watch like if the Sixers players are in it, specifically their first year, like JoJo's first year I wanted to watch, Ben's first year I wanted to watch. Now it's just like, okay, they're they're playing in a glorified exhibition game with some fancy dunks and a whole lot of three-point shooting. Well, it's great. That's the great. thing is Twitter and YouTube have ruined the dunk contest too because I can just watch all of the dunks the next day. Without the yeah. 45 misses. Yeah. Yeah. In a fraction of the time. Some good ones. Derek Jones. Whew, he can he can leap. I remember him in high school. Whew. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the stuff that we have actually watched and we might be marginally informed about. Only marginally. We don't want to set the bar too high. You know, because there hasn't been a whole lot that has changed here since the last one, and because we don't want to repeat ourselves too much, we decided to tap in to the reader mailbag. Or listener mailbag, in this case, since you're listening to the podcast. So we'll just jump right into it. And we'll start off with one from Nate Duncan, actually, uh, from the Dunked On podcast. How many games will Al Horford start in the playoffs? Now, of course, Horford came off the bench for the first time in over a decade. 
against the Clippers last week. The assumption is that will continue to be the case, at least for the, the, the near future, although we don't have that confirmed. But you assume he, they didn't make a change of that magnitude for a player of that stature for one game for one matchup. We'll rephrase it a little bit, and then we'll get back to his original question. If I set the over-under at six games that Al Horford will start in the playoffs, are you taking the over or the under? Well, I, it also depends on how far they go in the in the playoffs. I, I guess I would look at it this way, just because these seem like the first two series that we're going to see. Would Al Horford start against the Miami Heat and the Milwaukee Bucks? I think against the Bucks, the answer is yes. likelier yes. Yeah. Because, I mean, hello, that's why they got him. You know, we're only one of two Bucks games in. They actually have them this weekend. It's pretty much their only hard game coming out of the break until that West Coast trip. Against Miami? I mean, they, they've been starting Myers Leonard for most of the year, right? And, you know, that, that brings Horford more into play. I will say the answer, if those are the two teams, and I think those, I mean, more likely than not, are the two teams. Who knows? Sixers could get really hot. Their schedule is soft in the second half. And maybe one of these teams gets the injury bug or something like that. I, you know, I, it seems like something they're going to stick with in the regular season. And I mean, we've only had one game, but I don't think they would have made that decision without a certain level of commitment to it. Even if uh, Matisse Dybul and, you know, all, all of these other options have their own flaws. And, you know, we'll, we'll see who actually gets that starting nod. So, so I'm going to say the answer is going to be over just considering who they're playing in the playoffs. I think maybe if they saw a team like Boston, maybe if they saw a team like Toronto, I don't know. I mean, a lot of these teams are, are pretty big, you know? Um, Boston and Indy seem like the two teams where you would have a higher chance of Horford coming off the bench. And I agree with you that Milwaukee seems like, it seems like a very high probability, unless the Sixers just completely destroy teams with this new starting lineup, whatever that new starting lineup eventually becomes. Then maybe they sit, but other than that, like, it seems like Horford will—I would expect Horford to go back in the starting lineup against Milwaukee. And I agree with you, um, Miami is sort of the other team where I could really see that coming into play. Yeah, and I mean, against Milwaukee, they're just going to leave guys wide open from three who are not shooters. So I guess you would pretty much have to start Korkmaz to bring a material difference, I think, to the offensive end and, and how Milwaukee schemes against you. But, you know, yeah, it, it seems like once the playoffs start, to me, the more I'm talking about it they're going to play Horford more in, in the starting lineup. And I think, you know, that makes sense just considering what, you know, the way this team is constructed. This team, before they broke up the starting lineup, everybody thought it was going to be a playoff team. This team was built for the playoffs is what Brett Brown said. And I think Al Horford is a part of that. I definitely think they want him to close games, which is more important. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it gets tricky too because – if you bring Horford off the bench and then want him to close, you're basically just changing up the minutes that him and Embiid play together, right? Like he comes off the bench and then he would play nine straight minutes or something like that. And some of those would be with Embiid. Now you are breaking up Simmons and, and maybe there is value in just having two of the three on the court instead of all three. But yeah, I, I think the way I would phrase it for now is that in the regular season, I expect them to stick with this, especially because, as I said, they're going to play some bad teams. I feel like they're going to rack up a few wins here outside of the Milwaukee game on Saturday night, perhaps. And uh, But then by the time the playoffs roll around, I think there's a chance they change it back up again. It is a good point with Milwaukee. 
Whenever the Sixers play the Bucks, Milwaukee just dares Embiid and Horford to beat them from the perimeter. We focus a lot with Milwaukee on Giannis and still having a big man to protect the rim and, and, and control the glass. But there is that offensive concern too, and whether or not you can make them pay for their defensive scheme. The Sixers on Christmas Day, of course, did. Now, whether or not they can, I, I think we all agree, doing that four games out of seven is going to be tough with this collection. Horford shot so maybe, it good in the other game they played too, which, you know, that could be random. But it also he's just also could be easier looks. Yeah, I mean they, yeah. they're conceding that for good reason too, because they seal off the paint better than anybody ever. But uh, yeah, I mean I think at some point when the Sixers, when you're giving up those or you're you're getting those looks from your big guy, I think you consider all right. Well, we'll be a lot better defensively against this team with Horford. It it, it will be interesting though. I mean, and like I said, unless they really just run away with the rest of the final twenty seven games, this new starting lineup dominates people. It will be interesting to see how much they go back to that in the playoffs and how much matchups will dictate what happens in the playoffs. I do think matchups will play a, a very significant role in, uh, in what they do. And I mean, right, it, this- it, it comes down to Embiid's going to play 36 minutes a game in the playoffs, hopefully not 45 as we saw last season, but at some point you're going to have to put him and Horford on the floor together, or you're just going to concede that Horford's what, like a 10 minute a game guy. That's not going to happen. No, it's not. All right. So next question from Andrew Goldsmith uh, at golden Ando on Twitter. Is the buyout market broken? And his question is basically asking uh, that it allows poorly run teams with no financial flexibility to get quality players based on location and a chance to win it all. Ba ba ba. Basically, he dislikes the buyout market for competitive balance reasons. So I guess, sort of going back, veterans who have been bought out and signed, you've got very recently, you've got Reggie Jackson going, what, to the Clippers? Jeff Green, DeMar Carroll to the Rockets, Marvin Williams to the Bucks. What, MKG, I think, went to the Mavs? Yep. Probably a couple more big ones out there that I'm not remembering. But if, if you notice, the, uh, the, the trend there is that they're all going to contender. Now, this could be annoying for Sixers fans because none of them picked the Sixers as the contender to go to. Uh, whereas two years ago, you had Bellinelli and Ilyasova. And then last year... Like we mentioned before, you sort of had a slight downgrade in that, and then it got Greg Monroe, and this year you haven't gotten anybody yet. So, is it broken? I mean... I don't think it's broken. It's a weird season in that it's it's hard for a lot of these teams to match these exorbitant salaries that were signed four years ago, too. Yeah. Like, it, yeah, it's not so just a matter fewer of... fewer people traded. Correct. Yeah. It's not just a matter of poning up the assets for these guys. You have to find enough matching salary... To which the other team will accept the deal, too. I was happy that Iguodala got traded. I would have thought it would, would have been pretty lame if he would have ended up on one of the L.A. teams. Just because yeah, just because I mean, he made it, a little too much money. There's a lot that goes into this question. Is it? Is it? I guess, first of all, the part I would push back on that question in that it allows poorly run teams. I wouldn't say that. Like he said, it, it allows poorly run teams with no financial flexibility. Just because you have no financial flexibility does not mean you're poorly run. It just means you've You've spent your resources. Uh, a, lot, a lot of those teams I don't consider, like the Bucks aren't poorly run. The Rockets, all right, well, if you consider ownership, they're poorly run, but well run with the GM, poorly run with ownership. Uh, the Clippers weren't poorly run. They just, they're out of resources to spend. So I think by and large, I don't have a problem with the system itself. Like if you get bought out and you still get your money, go to a team, make a, a sacrifice a little bit and compete for a championship. And look, a lot of this, like a lot of these, I think are, you want to go to a spot where you can, it's not about how much, like, especially this late in the season when contracts are prorated, it's not about how much you can get in a contract this year. It's how much you can get in your next contract. 
So you want to go to a spot where you feel like you can show yourself and showcase yourself. And part of that is getting extra, literally an extra couple of weeks, maybe an extra month, even two months of a season where you can play an extra, you know, run to the NBA finals. You could be talking 20 plus games. So you want to go to a place where you have enough time to prove what you can do, not only on on the team you were previously on, but on a good team, on a contender. So you can go out there and get that next contract. So is it, is it broken? I don't want to say it's broken. If you're going to ask me how you could fix it or improve it, I'd have to spend a little more time thinking about it. I think really what he's talking about is he's frustrated that the Sixers haven't gotten any of these guys yet. Like, I think if the Sixers signed Marvin Williams. Marvin Williams the Bucks, is, the, is the big one. That that yeah. seems like, to me, the best player on the market. And he unfortunately went to the best team on the market. And, and I mean, and the one sometimes you're going to get a ring chaser, but sometimes you're not. Wes Matthews last year, Sixers would have killed for him. But he decided... Yeah that he wanted a better opportunity to play for a mid-tier team in Indiana. So it, yep. uh, it, it differs from guy to guy. All right, let's take one quick break to talk about DraftKings. This week, our Sixers are back in action to take on some of their biggest conference rivals, and DraftKings Sportsbook is here to provide a full betting experience. DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook, is offering a special promotion for this Saturday when the Sixers clash with the Bucks. Place a wager on Ben Simmons to score the first bucket and earn an extra dollar for every point, rebound, and assist that Simmons logs. It's no wonder DraftKings Sportsbook is America's top-rated sportsbook app. DraftKings Sportsbook is a safe and secure betting app where you can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code TOSS. For a limited time, all new users can get a sign-up bonus up to $1,000. That's right, DraftKings Sportsbook has a sign-up bonus up to $1,000. Don't forget, enter code TOSS and get your sign-up bonus up to $1,000, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, Pennsylvania only, in partnership with Meadows Racetrack and Casino. Bonus comprised of a first deposit bonus and a first bet match, each up to $500. Deposit bonus requires 25 times playthrough. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And now back to the show. From Rob Zane at Zaner28. Why does Mike Scott continue to get any minutes at all? And I, I picked this one because this is a conversation we've had on Press Row. I don't know. It's uh, it's one that I agree with as well. I thought when they had Burks and Robinson both playing against the Clippers, that Scott would be the guy who lost his minutes. They went with a 10-man rotation. Now, maybe that changes now that they have a little more practice time with Robinson and Burks. They, I don't know, Brad has a little more time to put them in the, the best positions to win. But to me, the the answer is to go with nine players and to downsize a little bit and bump Tobias Harris and, and Ben Simmons to the, the nominal four position. Even Glenn Robinson once in a while, I wouldn't think that's like a, a major issue, especially if you put him next to like Embiid or somebody. But yeah, I think uh, Mike Scott, love him. Great guy. He's the logical guy to... Uh, to see his minutes cut. I just, there's just, in addition to the shooting, which is obviously why he was signed. And if he's not making shots, it's, it's unfortunate because there's no, uh, there's no great analysis there, except the ball's not going in the basket, but uh, he just doesn't offer you a lot besides that. And, you know, I think particularly on the defensive end, he's a little bit of a space cadet <laughs> on that end of the floor. And, and there's a lot of times when the Sixers give up an open three where I'm thinking, you know, if Mike Scott is Thibault even if he's Korkmaz, you know, if he's anybody else, they're at least getting a hand up on that player one position over. And he just, he's a split second too late to read those plays. And 
in the NBA, that's killer. So yeah, I would, uh, I would phase him out of the rotation, but you know, and, and to be fair, like if one person gets hurt, he would get back in. But, uh, yeah, to me, he seems like the guy that I would be looking to phase out. Yeah. I think, I mean, so much of, of his, and look, he, he played five minutes against the Clippers. So, you know, we'll see what the new norm is when they have more time to play now that Josh Richardson is back and you have Burks and Robinson on your team. A lot of the numbers with him and Embiid together are really good. What Mike Scott can give you theoretically next to Embiid is really important. The problem is the ball hasn't gone in the basket very much over the last couple of months, and he doesn't offer anything really else on the basketball court outside of that spacing. I do think he he provides some spacing just by being there, but I it, it hasn't been enough to overcome his overall lack of production. Like I don't want to put too much too much real credit into the the numbers of Scott and Embiid. So I think that's largely just Embiid being really good. But theoretically, having that spacing and that really unconscious bomber next to Embiid would help. But I agree with you, considering how little he offers. Slide your other bigger forwards to a power forward spot. Get some more ball handling. Get some more more defense. Get some more playmaking. However you want to go about, whether that's Burks or Robinson or however you want to stagger your minutes. Uh, he, sh- I would be if if he unless he really starts playing well, I would expect he is the one whose minutes are going to be cut first. Me too, Just, but I've, they've given him a long leash this yeah. season. No, they really have. And his, like you said, when his shot's not falling, like his defense is a catastrophe. Like it's really bad, and. A lot of his minutes come next to Embiid, so a lot of them get sort of covered up. But he, his role can certainly be upgraded. Um, like you said, this is a a question I think is perfectly fair. The only the only real answer I have is that his spacing and his his threat of shooting is theoretically very valuable, but he has to actually make shots. Yeah, I mean he he does stand twenty five feet from the hoop, and people have to stand somewhat near him. He but stands yeah. in the right spot. Yeah, on but offense, what? not on defense. All right, this one. This is an interesting question, and I, I probably don't have a great answer. From Ransom Cazillo, uh, Ransom, C-O-Z-Z-I-L-L-I-O on Twitter. Given how good Simmons looks on defense, why do you think his defensive on-off metrics are so poor, as are all of his composite metrics? What's going on there? So it, I guess a little context behind the question. Here are some, first we'll go to some lineup combinations. Embiid and Simmons, this is all according to Cleaning Glass. Embiid and Simmons together average 105 Defensive rating, points allowed per 100 possessions. Uh, Embiid without Simmons averages 99.4 points allowed per 100 possessions. Simmons with no Embiid, 109.4. And without Simmons or Embiid is 108.5. So basically the suggestion there is that whenever Embiid's on the court, the defense gets better. And Simmons isn't having the kind of impact you would expect based on lineup combinations, right? Because Embiid and Simmons is actually worse than Embiid without Simmons. Simmons without Embiid is worse than pretty much anything else. And Embiid without Simmons hasn't had that drop-off. In fact, that it's actually gotten better. And one of the... I had I had Simmons and, and Horford without Embiid, and it's like right in the 107, 108 range. So right, right there. So basically, the suggestion is when Embiid's on the court, the defense is great. Simmons doesn't seem to be having that sort of impact. And if you look at defensive RPM, he is at a plus... Uh, 0.01, which ranks 229th in the league right around mid-pack. Whereas, you know, Embiid is obviously... I actually don't have Embiid's ranking. He's, he's he, Embiid, I think, is right in the top 25-ish. And yeah, most he's, years he's, he's right way up the top. there. So I guess, I guess th- this is tough because a, a lot of it does have to do... You know, Tobias oh, Harris is ninth. There you go. 
Embiid is 34th, Richardson's 33. Yeah, that is pretty funny, actually. When you start looking at defensive RPM, a lot of it has to do with, like, they'll take similar lineups and then try to find differences. So you'll, they'll set, like, Embiid and Simmons as a baseline as 105.0. And then because Embiid, the defense gets better when Embiid's on the court without Simmons, but gets worse, worse when Simmons is on the court without Embiid, they'll try to adjust that. And this could get real messy. I don't want to go into APM versus RPM versus RAPM versus XRAPM, like, we don't need to get into all that. But basically it tries to look at some of these combinations and figure out, measure your own impact on plus minus. The general gist is if let's say Embiid and Reddick are tied to the hip, Reddick's going to have a really good plus minus on the defensive side of the court because he's tied to the hip with Embiid. So it'll just be like, okay, those two play 90% of the minutes together. Let's look at the minutes that Reddick plays without Embiid. And then we can see what kind of defensive impact Reddick is actually having. But because it tries to figure out that context, it can also then become very successful to small sample size noise. So for example, this Embiid without Simmons, 99.4 defensive rating, that's great, but it's only it's only 780 possessions, whereas Simmons without Embiid is at like 2,400 possessions. So you're talking about nearly four times, uh, three times as much data. So if that 780 possessions is noisy, it'll give Embiid credit for stuff that he shouldn't get credit for or at least more credit than he should get. Which is why year-to-year RPM or anything that's adjusted plus-minus can be super noisy in that regard. And most people using RPM will tell you it's more of a predictive tool than it is descriptive of what has already happened. So I think, I guess what I would say is that a lot of these numbers, if you remove Embiid from the equation, a lot of it normalizes in 107 to 109 defensive rating range. Whether that's Simmons and, and Horford, Simmons without Horford, no Simmons at all. Like there's it's, things tend to seem to normalize right in that 107 to 109 range. So I think what it's showing is first of all, the, the impact one dominant center can have is more than even a switchable forward. And especially when that dominant center is the best or second best in the game. I'd have to really dive into some of these lineups, to figure out more on that. But here's, I, I here's what I'll conclude with. There isn't a single plus minus based number out there. And that's really what we're talking about. Cause once you start getting like, like some other statistics, Simmons has some good individual uh, statistics. It's these plus minus based stats. There is no plus minus based defensive metric that can convince me Ben Simmons isn't a great defender. And that's probably going to come off weird for some people because we have embraced advanced statistics, but I also like, I also see what's going on. And I just, I don't, I don't worry too much. Like I said, especially with something like adjust variations of adjusted plus minus where they're trying to figure out context and it can be so susceptible to small noise. I wouldn't, I, I would not look at that and say what I'm seeing on the court is wrong. I would not look at that. Like if you start looking at like points added, like TPA Simmons ranks out very well. There are some metrics out there that don't rely on plus minus that do do well. It's a, it's a really fascinating question. Defensive box plus minus. He's thirteenth in the league. Ben. Yep. So it's it's, it's hard as hell to measure defense, man. It is. And I think that's what it comes down to. I mean, RPM is a good tool because those lineup combinations can be so important. Like I said, attach Reddick to Embiid's hip, and Reddick's. If you don't try to use an adjusted plus minus, an RPM is a version of adjusted plus minus. Like you can get fooled into thinking Reddick is playing really good defense when that's not really the case. So it's good that it does that, but it then it introduces some noise. And I guess that's the easiest way 
I would say that uh, relying on that is then becomes a little bit problematic, especially if it flies in the face of what you're seeing on the court and what some of these other metrics are saying. So I would, it's uh, a fair question. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't lose sleep over it though. I guess yeah. is what I would say. And ju- just adding to what you said, um, in terms of the minutes played, I think that's really important because, you know, with Embiid missing all of these games, Simmons is going against a bunch of starting lineups without Embiid. So that's obviously a little bit harder. Embiid, yeah. for the most part, when he's playing without Simmons, it's against backups. And right. uh, because Simmons doesn't miss games. Yeah. yeah. And, and look, I mean, I think uh, I think it goes to show that as good as Ben has been, Joe's a more impactful defensive player. He might be the most yeah. impactful defensive player in the league. So that's not a. Uh, it's not a shot against Ben. The other thing I will say too is like it, it's not even just the minutes in the games that Joe has missed. You know, Ben plays forty three minutes a game, and and the other thing too, it, this struck me when watching the Sixers beat the Clippers right before the All Star break. Kawhi Leonard guarded Ben Simmons for a decent amount of that game, but he got some possessions off. They put J. Michael Green on him. They put Paul George on Simmons. There there might have been somebody else too. And Kawhi got his possessions guarding Thibault, just hanging out, playing free safety. Ben don't get that. He plays the hardest matchup at every time. And I think in a lot of these matchups, you'll see that Brett is tethering Ben's minutes to, you know, a Kawhi. Like, it's like the same thing that Nick Nurse did finally at the end of that series last year with Embiid, where when Embiid would check into the game, guess what? Here comes Marcus Hall. And, you know, the funny thing with Ben Simmons is that he'll he'll be getting his short break, you know, and, and they'll bring Kawhi in after he sat for, I don't know, six, seven minutes. And, and Brad will say, all right, you're going to have to guard him because we don't have anybody else who can really do it. Or I guess we have other people who can do it, but not at your level. So I, I think there is a little bit of noise in there in that he's taking the toughest matchup at pretty much all times. I think... uh you know, it's kind of similar. I feel like Shane Battier, back in the day, when he was guarding Kobe and all these guys, he didn't always grade out quite as well. And and that was part of the reason that, that wing defense, you know, people brought it up. Hey, why is why is he not grading out as well? Because, you know, it's pretty clear to me that, that he's a, a very impactful defender. It's a uh, it's a tough thing to measure. But, I, hey, look, it, it's a fair point. You would think he would rate a lot better than, than average. Like, it's not even just... He's a little below all NBA level. He's he's a lot bit below that. And a little I mean, bit of a shrug. The thing with RPM, if Embiid just wasn't on the team and you didn't have Embiid raising the floor of what was expected, then you wouldn't have Simmons dropping when Embiid leaves a leaves the floor. So you'd look at a hundred and seven defensive rating, and that would be that would still be a you know hundred and seven is like a top ten ish team. I want to say they guarded NBA. really well in that stretch when he he missed too. Yeah. Everybody so was think, crediting Ben's offense, but but really it was the Sixers' defense led by him and Horford and Richardson getting it done. Especially with some of these adjusted plus minuses, you you lose credit because you have a great player on your team, and and in, in, in some weird ways, it's a, it's it's tough. It's tough to measure. It's real tough. I had uh, this one came in through a DM, so I don't want to. He didn't say whether I should or should not mention him by name, but I will err on the side of privacy. So. How much can the Sixers offer Alec Burks and Glenn Robinson next summer? So I guess I guess I'll take this one real quickly because I didn't even bring it up to Rich. Uh, but it is this is more <laughs> a statement of fact. So they will both be non-bird free agents. 
meaning that they changed teams through free agency last summer, uh, and they only have one year then without changing teams. You, the Sixers can offer them 120% of the previous season's salary, which is next to nothing, with 5% raises up to four years. That is what they can offer them using their, their non-bird rights, which means that they will not be signed using non-bird rights because that is not enough money to offer either of these guys. So then what it comes down to is they will have the taxpayer mid-level exception, most likely. It depends whether or not they exceed the apron, but right now the most likely scenario is they exceed the apron or signing these guys would make them exceed the apron. The taxpayer mid-level is just under $6 million. It can be split up among multiple players, and you can use that for contracts up to three years in length with raises up to 5% over the base year. So the Sixers could bring back one of those players with the taxpayer mid-level. They can try to split that, say $4 million to Burks, $2 million to Robinson. I don't think either of them would accept that. No. But they could try to do that. Most likely, they could at most bring back one of those players using the taxpayer mid-level, and one of them will probably leave. The taxpayer mid-level is how they re-signed Mike Scott last season. Kind of feels like Robinson or is the taxpayer. likelier guy to not stick. Taxpayer. That was the, the room mid-level. But yeah. a mid-level is how they... It's a couple million more. Yeah, to me, it seems like Robinson is the guy who, I don't know, just feels like he's more likely to stick just because Burks in this very thin free agent market, his skill set is a tad more unique, and maybe Robinson would be willing to come back for, you know, a certain number if the Sixers were able to guarantee him time on a good team, Where, whereas Burke, I think Burks is likelier to get just a higher offer that's more worth his uh, worth his time to accept. All right, but I'm just guessing. One. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Last one, this one from Cam Rookeridge on Twitter. Outside of The Athletic, which does a great job of this. Thank you. We appreciate that. Uh, by the way, complimenting us always increases. I'm not going to say it will get you on. Get. I'm not saying it will get your question listed or read on this podcast, but it sure isn't going to hurt your chances. Uh, which commentators, writers do you think are most informative about on-court play as opposed to cap or narrative-based discussion? So hmm. who do you like in this regard? So I think The Athletic does a really good job of this. Let's let's mention that again. Um, I, I would really say you kind of have to look all over, right? Like for, for on-court breakdowns, honestly, like a good place to find a lot of this stuff, YouTube. If if you know the right places, like B-Ball Breakdown is one of them, and, and there are a few other places. I think Twitter is a good place to look. There's this guy, Steve Jones, who is, mm-hmm. is really good. He just basically watches games. I think he's a former NBA video coordinator, and he, he points out things one at a time. Um, what's the other guy who I follow? Mo, Mo Dockill. He's another former video coordinator who... Just watches games on YouTube and or uh, on watches games on his computer and breaks them down on on Twitter in these long threads and they are uh, they are very good. I mean, I think like look if if you go to th- there are people at ESPN who I think do a good job. I think obviously Zach Lowe is the one who comes to mind right away. But but ESPN certainly you know there's people like Kirk Goldsberry who they weave in there statistical analysis to to stuff that is actually happening on the court. But, you know, I I think the more I think about this question, I wish there were more, you know, and I think that's a little bit of a symptom of 
we need to make the game a little more popular. And because as much as uh, as we all love basketball, I'm sure most of the people watching this game love it. Uh, like the narrative and the free agency stuff. There's a reason you keep getting it. That's what uh, that's what helps pay the bills. So, and and again, I'm not completely complaining about that because I think that stuff in a uh, in a healthy dosage is uh, is what makes the NBA fun and unique and creates these storylines. But on the other hand, like it, the sport is what they should be trying to sell, which is why uh, that's why I, I get pretty hard on announcers. Like I thought Stan Van Gundy the other night for that Clippers Sixers game was awesome just because I don't know. He was excited to be there. He wasn't giving out any cliches. He was paying attention enough to point out that Ben Simmons has been getting the line a lot recently. That's stuff that a lot of national announcers miss. And he's obviously, he's a coach. So he's obviously very smart and knows these, uh, these players tendencies. And he did a good job of just, just making you a little bit smarter without beating you over the head with it. But uh, is is there anybody else you think I missed? Steve Jones was honestly the one that I was going to, um, I don't think is mentioned enough in this context. He does not have the following I would expect. Uh, so Steve Jones 20 on Twitter, he was the one that I was really going to point out. Zach Lowe was the obvious one that I think everybody would point out. But if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know about Zach Lowe. So that probably doesn't yeah. really matter. <laughs> Mike Prada, an old one. Uh, yeah. he's, he, he does this a lot. Ben Falk, he doesn't write anymore, which is a shame because he's a really good writer. But if you go back to some of his, his older work, cleaning the glass.com, uh, he, 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 all these guys are really smart, but Ben had a technical know-how of how to sort of showcase what he was seeing that I think he did a really good job with. There's, yeah, there's, there's a bunch, there's a bunch. Um, Steve was the one that I was going to point out. It's a little bit harder with basketball because in football, you have these people all over the place. You have from ESPN, where you have this guy, Dan Orlovsky, who is just ridiculously good at it. And then to to the teams, like the Eagles have this guy, Fran Duffy, who has these awesome clips literally every week. And the, the Eagles employ him, as they should. And, and he does draft stuff as well. And, you know, and, and then there are a lot of writers who do stuff from... You know, Shilkapadia to there's a bunch of people at the athletic who who do it. And I wish, I wish we did it a little bit more in basketball. I do understand as somebody who dabbles in this, it's a little bit harder to takes a lot of work. Yep. Break down basketball tape because it's, it's just a more fluid sport, right? Like I think in football, you can break down one play and because it starts from this fixed position that, you can pick up on tendencies and um, you can combine stuff together and tell a story a little bit easier in basketball. You really have to pay attention to it. And sometimes it's not easy to, uh, to kind of weave everything together into this one narrative, which is important. Like I, I think it's the way we try and educate people is also important because you can't make it boring. (laughs) <laughs> like you, yep. you gotta at least try to have fun with it and say, Oh, this is cool that, that this guy's doing this. And this is how maybe Giannis is taking the next leap or, or whatever, but to just give you, you know, here's, here's rub posts five times. That's, that's probably not going to 
rope in the casual fans. So yeah, I think it's something that even though I'm critical of, of kind of the NBA not going far enough and trying to explore this area, I also do concede that it's pretty hard to do. Yeah. The, the other guy I was going to mention um, also has not been writing lately, uh, but Dylan Murphy at Dylan T Murphy on Twitter he used to write for cleaning glass, but also the basketball dictionary he put out on medium is a good resource, a little bit more dry, kind of roped into your last segment there, but not going to rope into casual fans. But if you do want to know what horns flare is, he has some really good explainers on how to, uh, how to look that up. Yep. And that's certainly something I've used. All right. I think that is a good enough place to cut it off. Uh, after we just spent 15 minutes trying to discuss advanced statistics and versions of adjusted plus minus on a podcast, which we is can just talk absurd. About, we can talk about how the Nets are better than Kyrie or without Kyrie <laughs> yes. on the next podcast after they beat the Sixers. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's at the Wells Fargo center. They'll, they'll pull that one out. That's probably true. It's uh it's the weekend game against the bucks, which could be really interesting. That, that's an L about- that's an L just win four out of five here. <laughs> that's that one's over. That's okay. We will have all of that to talk about on the next podcast. Thank you, Rich, for jumping on, and we will talk to you soon. See you, man.